It's time now for super psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. Welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. This evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And today is Sunday, January 7th, 2024. And Happy New Year. It's the first show of 2024. I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we have a very special show in store for you this evening. Of course, Art Mendoza of Accomplice Entertainment, producer of this program, is here to make the show run smoothly as usual. And in a little while after the break, we'll be joined from Washington, D.C. by elder justice expert M.T. Connolly for a discussion on ageism in the healthcare system, elder justice, some solutions for going forward, and her new book, The Measure of Our Age. MT is a leading national expert on elder justice who was awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant for her work that has shaped policy, research, and practice for decades. She was the architect of the Federal Elder Law Justice Act founding head of DOJ's Elder Justice Initiative and lead author of the Elder Justice Roadmap. So we're going to have a really interesting discussion today. I'm very excited to have her here. And um, we're go- she's going to be the only guest this evening so that we can use the whole show to discuss this very important topic. And we'll be back in a few moments after a break. Um, Don't go anywhere because we are going to be very brief to play some commercials from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll be joined by M.T. Connolly. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed services or supplies you never received. There are three easy things you can do to prevent fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy. Protect your personal information. And look for any suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE. Or call your local Medicare SHIP program at 1-800-252-9240. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. And we're back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpel and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaricarpel.com. And now joining us from Washington, D.C., on the phone is M.T. Connolly, um, elder justice expert and author of the new book, The Measure of Our Age. Welcome, M.T. Hi, Mara. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. So glad, I'm so glad to have you here this evening. I think this is such an important topic and Um, your book really touches on so much of the topic of aging and, and, and ageism and all of the issues that we deal with in the healthcare system, long-term care, and, you know, um, those elderly who slip through the cracks at home. So, um, Maybe you can start a little bit with your background, just a little bit of your background so listeners know who you are. Sure. Um, And thanks so much for having me. Um, I 
began my career as a lawyer um, at the Department of Justice, as you mentioned, and there I began working on nursing home issues. And, of course, because we're at the Department of Justice, we weren't looking at the good ones. We were looking at the ones that ran into trouble. And as I began to learn more about what abuse and neglect looked like in nursing homes and how pervasive it was, I was sort of in shock. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, this is this terrible problem that we've just uncovered. And as I dug into it more, it became quite clear that it had been going on for a very long time. Um, Mm -hmm. And so then um, we used some of the tools of the Department of Justice to try and take it on, but that really wasn't the, that really didn't provide the solutions that we were looking for. Um, And so as I began to learn more, it became clear to me that nursing home issues are connected to a lot of other issues and, you know, largely that we in this country don't do a very good job um, helping people provide long-term care and that, you know, there are millions and millions of people who are struggling with how to care for older relatives or how to care for themselves and that we basically don't have any sort of coherent infrastructure or guidance or funding programs for that long-term care. Um, And so that led me to look at the issues more broadly. And I, as you mentioned, went to the Senate and helped draft the Elder Justice Act. And that was also a sort of humbling experience because we thought, oh, it's a federal law and it was enacted with the Affordable Care Act. But in fact, it didn't do as much as we really hoped it would do. So then I decided, okay, I really want to understand what's going on here, which is what led me to write the book. So that's mm-hmm. sort of the, those are the cliff notes of my background. Right. Okay. And and your book really does touch on uh, a very wide range of issues. And, you know, as you mentioned in the book, they, you can't just talk about one issue by itself. They're all interconnected. Um, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, some really, you know, sort of very impressive advisors said that you have to pick a lane. You know, you have to write about the legal issues or the medical issues or the social service issues or the more philosophical issues about aging. And, um, and you know, the problem is that aging doesn't pick a lane. It involves right. legal issues and financial issues and health mm-hmm. issues and service issues and family issues. And also sort of as you know from being a psychologist, there's some of the deepest, most existential aspects of how we make meaning of the time we have both ourselves and with others. And so what I ended up doing was writing a book. And, I, you know, the more I learned, the more I wanted to help other people not have to do the same research that I did because the systems are really complicated and the laws are complicated. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to try as much as possible to sort of have a um, – to translate what I was learning into stories and into clear language that helps readers understand how to navigate some of these really complicated issues as we grow older, Mm -hmm. both Mm -hmm. as you and I talked about ourselves and with the people we love. Right, right. So, you know, maybe we could start with that really tough issue that you were working on with the Department of Justice and and long-term care, Um, because I think this is really such a difficult issue. And as I mentioned to you um, when we spoke earlier, um, you know, I worked in long-term care facilities for many years, but nothing really prepared me for my mom being in a long-term care facility and having to advocate for her. And there were many problems, even though she was in one of the best that I'd ever seen. So, Maybe you can talk about some of the things that you learned in in your research for this book, as well as your research for the Elder Justice Act um, about long-term care. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe just starting with what you just said, which is that even people who have a lot of expertise in this, in geriatrics, whether you're a psychologist or a doctor or a lawyer or, um, you know, whatever aspect of aging you work on, it's really, really hard even for the experts. And, in fact, I have a chapter that looks at 
experts navigating the care systems on behalf of their own parents um, mm-hmm. just, so that we can get a glimpse of what, you know, what, what do the experts do? Um, okay, so dropping back and taking a look at care, I think maybe the place to start is that, um, is that you know, in, in the um, 1900s, um, it, in 1900, the average American lived 48 years, and by 2000 and still today, the average American lived 78 years. That's a, just a monumental jump in mm-hmm. um, longevity of 30 years. But our life expectancy is not equal, you know, like our health spans are shorter than our lifespans. So although we live an average of 78 years, we're healthy an average of 66 years. And what that means is that we have millions and millions of people who need more care than ever before in the history of humanity. Um, and our country really isn't ready for it. And so we have, there are various different kinds of possibilities, you know, as um, there is long, there are long-term care facilities, there are nursing homes, assisted living facilities, group homes, and um, continuing care, retirement communities, which sort of have a bunch of different options under one umbrella. Um, but the place where most people get care and most people want to get care is at home. Um, and so right now we have more than 50 million people providing what's called informal, mostly unpaid care at home. Um, and mm-hmm. they don't get much help from our um, systems. We don't really have very good systems in place to help those 50 million people, more than 50 million people getting care. And so they, the work they do is um, we do, you know, you've done it, I've done it, is we're, mm-hmm. it's estimated at being more than um, we're valued at over a half trillion dollars. And also wow. the lost income is valued at about a half trillion dollars. And actually, I was not a caregiver in the way that that number is defined, which is someone who provides 24 hours or more, an average of 24 hours of care a week over an average of four years. That's just an astounding amount of care, and we're not helping people. So that's Mm -hmm. the home care aspect of things. Then what we have is the... um, the, uh, long-term care system. And, you know, we just have not done a very good job building a long-term care system and a long-term care payment system. So a lot of people think that Medicare covers long-term care, but it doesn't. Um, And people think that maybe their health insurance plans will cover long-term care, and it (laughs) usually doesn't. Um, And some people have long-term care insurance, which is often very expensive, and then often it doesn't cover what they need when they need it because there are all these mm-hmm. loopholes. And so um, so that's sort of one really big aspect of it that is a driver also of people staying at home. I and mean, people want to stay at home, but also they're scared of the cost because long-term care impoverish, impoverishes lots of families. So, sure. um, it, so we don't have a coherent payment system, and the part of the Affordable Care Act that would have provided long-term care insurance was repealed very quickly. Um, wow. So, so it's just it's a it's a really significant problem, and we don't have a system. And so, what ends up happening, I think, is that people feel like they fail at aging or fail at caregiving, when in fact our society has failed us because we just haven't kept up with the demographics of the um, of the population. Yeah, I mean, what you just mentioned is pretty. I did not know that that was supposed to be in the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> um, and it was it was thrown away. Um, most people that I have seen in nursing homes, including my mom, end up on if they're li- there long enough, they end up on Medicaid. And That's in exactly most right. states, yes. most states that impoverishes their spouse if they have if they still have a living spouse. There are very few states that protect a well spouse. So it's you know it's pretty it's, horrible. Um, Yes. And, you know, if you have cancer, if you fall and break your hip, um, if you, for example, I recently fell and broke my leg. And, um, and that is covered. The surgery was covered. 
by, um, you know, is covered. But if you have Alzheimer's um, and you need a different sort of care than, you know, surgery or a hospitalization, if you need um, somebody to help you around the house, that's not covered. And so Mm. literally whether you're impoverished or not by your health expenses depend on what kind of disease you have and what kind of illness you have as you, you know, at any time in life, but especially as we grow old. Um, And that's something that a lot of people also don't realize. Um, And Mm -hmm. as you said, Medicaid, which is a program that requires you to be poor in order to qualify for it. And every state has its own rules, um, but it's, uh, but it's, it's, um, it's a, you have to be impoverished in order to be eligible for mm-hmm. Medicaid, so, mm-hmm. which has all right. kinds of downstream consequences. Yeah. Well, the, you know, and people don't realize that when they do go on Medicaid in a nursing home, that, that Medicaid doesn't cover anything extra. Medicaid keeps you alive, but it doesn't help you thrive. So like clothing, um, you know, we had to pay out of pocket, our own pockets to buy my mom's clothing when she lost 30 pounds, um, haircuts, um, ex- any snacks that she kept in her room um, if she wanted to buy something for herself, anything like that. Um, we had to pay out of po- our own pockets for it because she was only in Connecticut. She was only allowed to have ninety dollars total in well, her I will say at all. That <laughs> um, states differ in what they cover mm-hmm. under their Medicaid mm-hmm. programs, um, and increasingly, a large part because of the efforts and nudging of disability rights advocates. Um, uh, Medicaid now covers home and community-based services. So if you need a Mm -hmm. caregiver at home, sometimes it'll cover that. The problem is that there are caps on how much uh, it will reimburse. And so if, you know, which reduces your freedom in terms of who you can hire, and there are shortages in many places of of aids, both for – um, facilities and in home settings. So, mm-hmm. and, and and those caps in um, payment also sort of perpetuate another problem, which is that most aides who are predominant, you know, disproportionately women and people of color are paid very poorly and often treated very poorly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that is something that also is a problem in terms of the quality of care because we're not doing right by the caregivers often. Um, and right. I think until we have systems that also treat caregivers, the people, the paid caregivers, as well as family caregivers um, properly, that is going to mean that we have worse quality of life as we age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the topics that you discussed in your book was about the, in terms of money, is about the um, not knowing what amount of money is actually going back towards a resident care in nursing homes. So, you know, you, you people pay out of pocket for a period of time, even before they go on Medicaid, they pay very large amounts of money for someone living in a nursing home. And then, you know, Medicaid pays a significant amount of money for that person once they take over, but there is no transparency um, with regard to how much of that money actually goes to patient resident care. What What did you find in your research about that? That's such an important question um, and point. Um, more well, approximately a hundred billion dollars goes to nursing homes, and it's more than a hundred billion dollars in public money goes to nursing homes and those CCRCs that I just mentioned, continuing care retirement communities. 
Um, and overall, it's about $181 billion, but it's $100 billion of public dollars. And we don't really have very much transparency and accountability for how those dollars are being spent and how much actually reaches the bedside, how much goes to the actual care of the residents, um, including to, to pay staff and the numbers of staff. And that is just I mean, it's, it's not good stewardship of public monies, and it means that we don't know, <laughs> we don't know how much staff there, you know, how many staff people there are in facilities often, or if we know that, you know, what the quality of the care is. Um, so we mm-hmm. just need to do much, much better job with accountability and transparency of how these public monies are being spent. And, you know, um, I just find it sort of mystifying that we don't know this information and that we don't have, um, that we don't have better, uh, you know, mandates in terms of reporting. Um, because, again, and increasingly, um, as you're, you might be alluding to, um, nursing homes, like many other health um, ventures, are being bought up by private equity and other for-profit entities. Um, and so they're part of these huge um, financial conglomerates, and we just don't we don't know. What we do know is that how a place is staffed, how this both the numbers of staff and how staff are treated and paid and trained and supervised and what kind of um, career ladders they have has everything to do with the quality of care. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so we know how to improve these kinds of places. We just haven't done it. And, I mean, the other thing is that people say, oh, it's too expensive, it's too expensive. And I don't buy that argument yet because we don't know how the money's being spent. First, before we say there's not enough money or, you know, it, it, this would require hundreds of billions of more dollars, we need to know how the hundreds of billions um, are being spent that are actually going toward um, long-term care. Right. Well, I've found it really shocking that we don't even know who owns the nursing home, many of the nursing homes, that, that they, that how can, that just seems like shady business, <laughs> that we don't know the owners of the nursing home. Right. I mean, it, I, yeah, it should, we should mandate it, and we know how to mandate those kinds of things. Basically, if you say, okay, as a condition of getting these public dollars, you have to certify here that, you know, this is the ownership, these are the entities that have ownership um, stakes in this, um, in this facility, and this is how the money is going to be spent. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. we have a long way to go. And yeah. I think, you know, and this is low-hanging fruit. I mean, actually, one other thing that plays into it is that under, um, under um, the federal programs, a nursing home is a mandatory benefit, but home and community-based services are not a mandatory benefit. And so that means also that there's a sort of an essential preference for, um, uh, for nursing homes um, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, which is way, by way of saying, again, as I, you know, that there are policy changes that are fully within reach um that that we should be that we should be uh paying more attention to right right but it sounds like and this is just my guess <laughs> it sounds like they're not paid attention to because there's a push for profit and um i have heard that the nursing home lobby is one of the strongest lobbies in Washington, um, has that been well, something that I you've will, seen? I mean, certainly the nursing homes have a lot of political power. It's not just nursing homes; it's nursing homes and assisted living and hospice. You know, they've all sort of thrown in their lot together politically. Mm-hmm. In, in the for-profit entities have, um, and uh, and that they have a lot of political power, and the residents have much less political power. I mean, here I should do a shout-out to the Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, which is run by the awesome Lori Smetanka, 
Um, and they also run the National Ombudsman Resource Center, which is um, which is an organization. Ombudsmen advocate on behalf of uh, residents in all sorts of long-term mm-hmm. care. And in some states, again, it differs a little bit by state, but um, also on behalf of the uh, um, it, it, people living at home receiving long-term care in some places. And Texas has a wonderful long-term care ombudsman, um, Patty Duque, and, you know, it's a really important program. Um, so mm-hmm. there are, you know, there are resources here. Um, but in terms of sort of political power and political will, there just hasn't been the political will to really do the things we know need to be done to change the system. Right, right. Um, so, you know, in your book, you discuss um, some issues, some of the issues that make it easy for the system to remain broken over all these decades, um, including the cultural norms that we as a society kind of just look the other way or don't even notice because of the norms and our beliefs about older people, um, and you devote some time to that in the book. Can you talk about that a little bit, some of these cultural norms that affect the, our treatment of older people? Absolutely. Um, so this also, I was sort of mystified why we, why the norms haven't kept up. And actually, I'll just add a couple other systems that I think are worth paying some attention to, although maybe we won't get into them quite as much. There is a specialty, a medical specialty called geriatrics, which is sort of like pediatrics and kids. Older people are not just old adults. They also have different kinds of medical needs. But geriatrics is, last year, um, only about 50% of geriatric fellowships were filled. And so we really need more medical um, and health experts who have geriatric expertise because the data are really clear that it improves quality of life and length of independence. You know, our financial Mm -hmm. systems, as people get older, some people experience cognitive decline. um, And sometimes it's not visible. It's not clear for a long time. And that can be um, played out in the financial setting. So, for example, older people are disproportionately scammed. Um, and exploited, and the financial industry and the entities that regulate them have been very slow to try to protect older people from that kind of financial exploitation. And indeed, we don't really know what works well in terms of preventing it. Um, uh, And then there are really complicated autonomy safety issues that we need to balance. So, for example, if I want to give away my money, to a new best friend um, or a suitor or somebody like that, um, Mm -hmm. should my kids stop me? Or if it's giving me joy, like how long, like we need to respect people's autonomy about where to live and how to spend their money and what kind of care to get and with whom to have romantic um, uh, encounters. But also, we, we don't want somebody to suddenly lose all their money or to be terribly exploited or controlled. And so that's another area where society has really not kept up in terms of the, you know, developing philosophical and ethical guidance for mm-hmm. families and for policymakers and for professionals about how to navigate these tremendously complicated issues. So. Um, so that's just, you know, just to sort of fill out the picture a little bit in terms of mm-hmm. not just in the care. Aspect. Um, uh, so I think one thing that was really striking to me as I did the research was that, you know, we have these cultural norms that haven't really kept up with the demographics. Um, and generally, There's very pervasive ageism that's manifested in the legal system, in the health system, Mm -hmm. in all kinds of different systems. And the problem with ageism, there are many different kinds of problems with ageism. One of them is that it's really bad for us from a health perspective. A woman named Becca Levy, who's an epidemiologist at Yale, did a study showing that people who have the most positive views of aging live seven and a half years longer 
than people who have the most negative views of aging. And that that cumulative health burden of ageism is about $63 billion. So really, it's a very (laughs) significant problem that really... Um, you know, it seeps into our systems. You know, I, I think one of the reasons we don't have a better long-term care system and one of the reasons we haven't done more is this kind of ageism. Um, mm-hmm. But also it plays out in other ways. So if you think about how we live our lives, if you think about the options of older people, generally it's either isolation, people being really increasingly isolated in their own homes, um, or segregation by age, right? L- older people living together with other older people. We don't have what are called age-friendly communities very often, which is an opportunity to live maybe with people your own age and to have a lot of contact with people of other ages, right? To have these intergenerational communities and activities. And that, we've lost a lot. So I think mm-hmm. the isolation segregation is really a problem. It also breeds a lot of loneliness. A lot of older people are very, very lonely. Now, it isn't only older people who are lonely, and the um, um, and uh, Vivek Murthy, who's our Surgeon General, has written very compellingly about the problem of loneliness. He has a great book called Together, and he's really made that an, an important aspect of his work, is taking on loneliness, because especially coming out of the pandemic, a lot of people are increasingly lonely, and it's part of a real mental health crisis. But a lot of older people are lonely too. And I think one reason is that we've done a really bad job of sustaining um, communities that are integrated by age and that are friendly for people that are, that are welcoming and easily mm-hmm. navigable by people of all ages. So, um, mm-hmm. but I think, yeah, so that's, that's one aspect. There's, there's, there's more to say about, about um, ageism, but I'll, you know, but uh, yeah, that's, that's well, one of the, one of the issues. Yeah, yeah, and I think ageism, and I've talked about a lot on this program, is so pervasive. And one of the last prejudices that we have even looked at as a society um, certainly affects um, how doctors treat how doctors treat patients. Like you said, um, geriatrics is a specialty, just like pediatrics. Um, but so many doctors don't have that specialty, and, they, and their ageist views might come into play when they're treating an older adult. So that's, the, Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I will say that Texas is um, the University of Texas, is home to a really um, robust and wonderful program that was uh, formerly led by my friend and colleague, uh, Carmel Dyer, um, mm-hmm. who we lost much too soon, and I believe she was also on your show. Um, she but was. The University of Texas um, has a really strong team that's doing great work in conjunction with APS and in conjunction with Dell Protective Services in conjunction with um, all kinds of other partners. So um, so Texas is fortunate in that you guys have really one of the leading programs in the country in terms of doing elder justice work um, at the University of Texas in Houston and then some other spots around the state. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear that. And, when, uh, and I'm very sorry to hear that, um, Carmel, uh, passed so young. I didn't. I hadn't known that until you told me that. Um, but I met her um, at the Capitol here in Austin, uh, and she was on my program soon after that. She was talking about how she was creating um, this a mandatory study studying of, of geriatrics by medical students. She was. I think at that time that she was on the program, she was um, working to make it mandatory in the state that if you study medicine, you have to you have to study geriatrics as part of the course requirement. Yeah, I'm, Car- Carmel was a real innovator and did all mm-hmm. kinds of incredible work in the field um, and started the Team Institute, uh, Texas Elder. Um, abuse and mistreatment um, institute there. Um, and actually, 
when we first were rolling out the Elder Justice Act before it was enacted, we had a we held a hearing, I believe, in the Finance Committee, and Carmel was one of the um, witnesses. I you know I mm-hmm. cajoled her to come in up to D.C. to testify, and she was wonderful. She was a very compelling um, advocate as well as being a wonderful doctor. So, and actually, I'm mm-hmm. going to be giving a lecture later this year at the University of um, Texas, uh, there was a lectureship created in her honor, and I'm very honored oh, wow. to be giving that lecture later on this year. I believe it's going to be in September. So, um, Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I, you know, I mentioned to you um, about my experience when my mom was in the hospital two years ago in the, in the doctor, the doctor who was treating her, who was, really awful um one of the things he said was that he knew about treating my mom because he took a seminar one time in geriatrics and (laughs) i almost fell over (laughs) um i wondered um, how many how many doctors feel that they're qualified because they took a seminar yeah alas you know there are a lot of doctors testifying and guard there are a lot of doctors who testify in guardianship hearings, for example, who, you know, sometimes are not that familiar with what, you know, what cognitive impairments and stuff like that. But, but I will say, you know, one thing that when you and I spoke, um, I was, you know, you, you did such important work advocating for your mom um, and I was struck by the sense of purpose that mm-hmm. you found in it and that uh, many of us have found in, you know, being there for our um, parents or other loved ones. You know, I, I had a, a law professor, actually, who taught at the University of Texas in Austin, a woman named Zipporah Wiseman, who was a very important person in my life and in my family and, you know, was like a, another grandparent for my kids. Um, and... Uh, and that is another, I think, I don't know if it's a manifestation of ageism so much as our becoming distracted um, by the busyness of, um, of late life or just by life in general. And, you know, with, one of the things that was um, most striking to me and really kind of shocked me in writing the book was my research into meaning making and how Mm -hmm. we make meaning of the time we have, which becomes, uh, excuse me, we are, you know, as, as life gets shorter um, or we, we, we feel that the end is closer, which I feel too, you know, we, we all feel that I think as we move Mm -hmm. through time and get older um, it, there's a kind of preciousness that can, you know, that it, that we can cultivate. But the truth is, we can do it all of all life long. And so, the thing that was really um, exciting for me was to understand that we can, that there are ways, very concrete ways, to make meaning of life if we can just remind ourselves to do it, um, and that. Uh, that it can really change our quality of life and change our health. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I just, I don't, I didn't want to <laughs> fail to to mention some of those because I feel like it's just such a, there's such powerful ways that we can really um, uh, kind of improve our own old age and the time that we have with other people. Um, because it isn't all about getting great health care or putting all the right legal um, provisions in place, although I do write about all that and try to, you know, give people a better, you know, sort of primer in terms of um, those things to do. But um, but there are, you know, I, there are really, I write about five different ways to really mm-hmm. improve our well-being as we age um, for ourselves and with others. So the first one is connection. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and love, but it's, it's, you know, staying connected to our communities, staying connected to the people we love. And that doesn't just happen out of thin air. You know, that requires 
that requires work often, right? Our, the important, our, our important relationships require that we stay on top of them. And that actually was the subject of, um, of a book called The Good Life, which came out about a year ago. Um, and the second thing is purpose. And, you know, you and I spoke about this um, in terms of you caring for your mom, but there are, if we are engaged in something that feels bigger than us, something that matters to us, but also often is something that improves the well-being of somebody else, that is really mm-hmm. good for us. And there's a study by a guy named Steve Cole at um, UCLA who looked at, you know, people who did volunteering and other sorts of stuff, and they had very lasting health benefits because mm-hmm. of that work. Um, mm-hmm. Then there's also thinking about old age as a time of expanding potential. You know, we think of it as like doors closing in America often. And actually, if we think about it, we have this whole additional chapter of sometimes decades. And so how do we embrace that time is really, the you know, it's a sacred gift time. And so what do we do? You know, so there's the curiosity about the world and creativity, and there are all kinds of different things that people can do if they can, you know, sort of think about that additional um, time in a different way. Um, And then there's this notion of awe or transformation, you know, like um, looking at the Grand Canyon or the night sky or hearing a beautiful piece of music and something that kind of makes us feel like we're part of the flow of life, but also kind of small maybe. And ironically that can help us um, sort of understand our place in a different Mm -hmm. way, you know, and, and sort of change our consciousness. And actually there's a study going on right now at Johns Hopkins relating to using some psychedelics to actually do that under, you know, very controlled circumstances, but that really has benefits for people at the end of life and perhaps even people who have um, cognitive impairments. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's storytelling, which is, you know, we are, as a species, we are people who make sense of our lives by telling stories. We're, you know, homo narans is I think what the anthropologists call it. And, you know, how we, sort of assemble all the random stuff that happens to us over our lives into one coherent story is how we make meaning of our lives. But also old age is a time to ask about other people's stories. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of older people have very, very rich stories to tell, but nobody ever asks. And it's one of the reasons that um, Dave, I say um, uh, in the StoryCorps project has, you know, encouraged young people to ask their older relatives about their stories um, because it's a way of connecting and of sort of learning and making sense of the world in a different way. So Mm -hmm. those are, you know, it's a really important way, I think, of reframing how we think about older age in a much more positive and enriched way. Yeah, and I love that. You know, that's a big part of, you know, the theme of this program and my and my book is about finding, you know, finding our passion and our meaning no matter our age. And I love that you put it into those concrete steps um, because it seems so elusive sometimes. Right, exactly. And it was a revelation for me that there are very concrete ways and, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. a good time of year at the beginning of the year to say, okay, how how can we make meaning and both ourselves and in our relationships, you know, because we get so overwhelmed by all the stuff that can happen when, you know, when things kind of get hard in old age that we sometimes forget to just be there and mm-hmm. sh- share stories and share time and, we get distracted from the things that matter most sometimes. And and so that was really a revelation, and it can be very healing in all sorts of ways. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say one of the things that drew me to wanting to work with older adults, that you know, I was in my 20s when I made that decision, um, 
had to do with the storytelling part. That really drew me that I had an opportunity to sit with someone who had lived so long and had so many stories and, you know, just ask them their stories. And I felt like I wasn't really working. I, you know, it was, I felt like it was, it, it was so enriching for me. Um, I would picture their stories Absolutely. in black and white. <laughs> it was Absolutely. like they were from black and, and white it, movies. It changes us. I think, you know, mm-hmm. intergenerational storytelling changes the young, younger people and the older people. And it is mm-hmm. uh, it's a natural resource. You know, there's so much we have to give one another and that we often forget about. Um, and so I think it should, I think storytelling, actually all those aspects of meaning making should be woven into how we think about aging um, and you know, in the formal systems, you know, in the way we provide long-term care also, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, not just have it sort of be this afterthought, because, you know, the things that matter most are the things that matter most to us. Right. <laughs> so, you know, in the few minutes that we have left, I'm going to ask you a very big question that you probably cannot answer in these few minutes, but it seems like you've started on that already with talking about meaning and purpose. And I guess the question is, how do we get people interested in wanting to make these changes that we've talked about, the changes to long-term care, changes to the healthcare system, changes to, you know, making laws to protect older people and their finances and all of that. How do we even get people on board with that? Um, It is a very big and a very important question. I mean, I think we need to start with ourselves, with our own consciousness, and just get right with ageism and try and get rid of that baggage. Because I think until we stop having this bias, this like shame and fear and loathing of old age, we're not going to be able to bring ourselves to try and change the system. Um, mm-hmm. And in our own lives and families, we have to start thinking about it in advance and planning more and trying to, you know, just change what we can. But also I think we need to think about what is the low-hanging fruit? What can we do soon in communities and in terms of laws? And then be much more tactically smart about how we do things and how do we create political constituencies um, to press for a much broader tableau of um, of uh, policies and programs that can really help improve aging. We've done that. I've worked closely with colleagues in Maine to create a new program that I write about in the book also, and that the governor of Maine recently included in her budget and the legislature passed, and it's now part of the law because we, wow. we had, you know, we conceptualized it carefully. Mm-hmm. We, we looked at the research, then we collected data to show what the impact was and to show our work. So it is doable, and I think we need to, you know, start, um, we need to start sort of putting hope and lessons into action. And then we need to do research to figure out whether what we're doing is working and how it's working Mm -hmm. and how we need to tweak it to make it work better. So I think there's a combination of, um, you know, the, the humility to ask what the impact is of what we're doing and then the, you know, the innovation and hope of creating new ways to do things. Because, I, I, you know, it's a miraculous thing that we live these much longer lives than any other, you know, the, any other era of humanity. I mean, it's just an extraordinary thing. But we, um, but we have kind of lost track of the quality of life. Um, mm-hmm. And we pay way more attention to extending the time than in assuring the quality of the time that we've gained. And so I think we need to shift our focus and put much more um, energy and more resources into how do we improve the quality of life as opposed to just like living longer, 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 because that's 
that's a hollow victory then. Um, what we want to do is mm-hmm. to be able to really have joy and meaning and uh, connection and purpose in the time that we've gained. So I think it's mm-hmm. doable. It's, it, you know, some things are easier than others. There's some really big challenges, but there's also, it's, it's also not impossible. And so, um, but it's going to require, it's going to require a, a real change, a cultural change, um, a political change, and a change in our own consciousness and family. Mhm, mhm. So start locally and go globally. <laughs> um, well, you know. start personally. I mean, the personal is yep. the political here too. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then you know, so start start in our own in our own selves. You know, and we've learned mm-hmm. a, we've learned a good amount about how to reduce bias when it comes to other kinds of biases and start in our families, have conversations about aging early and finding out what people want and how they want to arrange things and what are the preferences and how are we going to share the work and share the financial burden. Um, and then have conversations in our communities and with our friends and, um, and also really think about what are the political demands and then make politicians be accountable for those. Um, mm-hmm. There are ways to do this. I mean, we've seen it in many other areas, um, but we haven't really seen it in this area very, very well, um, right. or very, uh, you know, very often. And so, um, you know, it's totally possible. Um, but until we get our heads on straight about aging and really thinking about how we want to have better old age individually and collectively, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it, we're the ones who suffer. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's in our manifest best interest to do a better job with this. And it's in right. everyone's best interest. Right, because this is so. one group of people that we are going to be a part of if we're lucky. <laughs> That's right. We, we, mm-hmm. And the people we love are going to be part of it. And we right. don't want to be a burden on our kids either. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, and I mean, my kids have been great. They're like, okay, we have to have these conversations, mom. You know, I recently, I told you I fell and broke my leg and it was a pretty severe break. And it was like, okay, it's time to start having these conversations, um, about what it looks like. And it was a real lesson for me about what it looks like to be quite dependent. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, I was fortunate because it was temporary, but uh, but I learned a lot also about how to be a good care recipient. Um, so there's you know there's a lot of learning to be done here. Right. Um, right. Uh, you know, and it's not easy. None of it's you know, and but that's not you know life isn't easy. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's how to balance the hard stuff and the good stuff, and that is, I mean, you're you're the psychologist, not me, but that's that's a lifelong. Um, that's mm-hmm. our lifelong challenge is how to how to have how to balance those things in our lives and um, and uh, how to integrate them. And aging is no different in that way. It's just that the balances are different and there are new new kinds of challenges. Um, mm-hmm. So so we need to you know, and that's why I wrote the book was to try to um, sort of try because I feel like. I learned so much in part, in large part because of my failures um, mm-hmm. that hopefully it can help somebody else. So speaking of your book, um, how can people find out about you and your book and how to purchase it if they're interested? What are the best ways? Um well, the, the book is called The Measure of Our Age, Navigating Care, Safety, Money, and Meaning Later in Life. And, uh, and you know, you can get it pretty much anywhere where there are books. It's, you know, available online at wherever you prefer to buy books. It's available in a lot of um, bookstores, fortunately, including my own wonderful local bookstore called Politics and Prose. And I have a website, which is mtconnelly.com. Uh, which has a whole bunch of different purchasing options and also talks more about um, the other work I do and the RISE model program that we started in Maine that's also now um, 
being uh, adopted in other places, and so that's that's probably the best place to go. Um, and there's also a okay. way to contact me on the website. Okay, great. So I'm going to post all of that on my website post about this program um, later tonight when I also post the the podcast of the show so people can go back and re-listen and they can also see those links and just click on them. So that'll be there later that tonight. That sounds perfect. Yeah. Thank okay. you so much. And I'm, for, happy for... To, I'm happy to – oh, excuse me, sorry. No, go on. Um, I was just going to say I'm happy to provide any other links if anybody, you know, if people have questions to, you know, in terms of other stuff I talked about. Sorry, I Great. interrupted. Great. Yep. 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 So they can just reach out to you on your website and ask you for that? Yes. yes. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for being on this program. This is really, really, um, you went into a lot of in Informa- a lot of detail, a lot of information, really important stuff. And um, I really appreciate you making time to be on this program, and I hope to have you back on sometime in the future. Well, I'd love that, and thank you for having me and um, for your you know, dedication to these issues. So I really enjoyed the conversation. Take good yeah, time. me too. All right. You have a good night. Okay. Thanks, Mara. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. So we've come to the end of another program. And before we go, let me let you know what's happening next week. Um, Next week is Sunday, January the 14th, and we have another live show to help us start off the new year, 2024, on the right foot. Uh, Vietnam War veterans and Buddhist monks, founder of Zalto Foundation, and author um, Claude Anshin Thomas, who's been on the show several times to discuss finding peace within and around us, will be back to start off the year with a discussion of creating peace within ourselves in 2024 in such a turbulent time. And if you want to hear tonight's program again and read the information from this show and get those links that we just talked about, um, go to my website, drmaricarpel.com, and you can also hear all of the previous shows that we've done all the way back to 2014. Um, when we started out on Blog Talk Radio by going to my website. And you can also hear all of those shows on blogtalkradio.com slash your golden years in addition to tonight's program. And you can hear them all on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow me on Facebook for Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years, for upcoming programs and events. This show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions. Thank you to my guest, M.T. Connolly, and thank you to Art for helping it run smoothly. Thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. Brothers of the sun, to children of the moon at night, one sees the stars, one hears the bird in flight, like the beauties in the sea, they live their lives in harmony, one sees the waves. And one hears the song it brings. And Micah's out to play. And Nathan's here to stay a while. And don't go so far away. He's right behind. Watch him, here he comes.
Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsor, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any information on this program. 